crest towards Clanton. Um, turn around. I was driving down Clanton. I'm turning around and see if I can find him again. This is at Glover, subject to 1074, electronic ID aware. NCJA 1014. NCJA 1014. Each year, millions of Americans face the reality of living with mental illness. Organizations such as the National Alliance for Mental Illness, more commonly known as NAMI, assist individuals and families fight stigmas and provide valuable support. In law enforcement, we almost always think mental illness is a call for service, maybe resulting in a time-consuming involuntary commitment or transport. Yet more frequently than ever, we're hearing stories of unusual behaviors, crimes being committed, and acts of violence involving individuals experiencing a mental crisis. Sadly, some of these incidents involve former or current law enforcement officers. In a previous podcast, I shared with you an eerie but telling statistic. In 2019, more law enforcement officers took their own lives than were killed in the line of duty. Just as we're learning to deal with the public in a different way, law enforcement officers are in the midst of a paradigm shift that shines the crisis behavior light on the profession that responds to it a somewhat lengthy way of describing officer survival. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of NCJA 1014. I'm your host, Kirk Puckett. It's my pleasure to welcome back the Justice Academy's resident expert on crisis, Paul Phelan. Paul is a training coordinator based on the Edneyville campus and presents courses in crisis negotiation and active shooter response, among many others. There's also an endeavor to strengthen peer support. And that's going to be the focus of today's discussion. Paul, on our previous podcast, we talked a lot about the stressors of law enforcement. So let's do a quick review of some of those and how, if they are left alone to build, can sometimes have a tragic ending. Kurt, so thank you for having me again. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and last time we talked a lot about cumulative stress, Um which is prevalent in law enforcement. And, and simply put, again, that is the buildup of all the stuff, for lack of better words, uh, that we encounter in law enforcement and that we never deal with. And when those things add up and we don't deal with them, um, it could lead to, again, uh, isolationism, uh, perhaps even excessive alcohol or substance abuse, uh, promiscuous relationships, uh, and even family or marital issues uh, in, in its general sense. Well, we also spent some time talking about critical incidents and the implications that they can have on an officer's mental health. So this podcast is being recorded on the heels of the shooting deaths of two <laughs> Watauga County deputies. And this tragedy was part of an incident that mm-hmm resulted in five overall deaths, including the shooter and his parents. I I guess it's more than obvious that this cries out for critical incident debriefing. Describe for our listeners what this looks like in North Carolina and more importantly, why it is essential to those who were involved. So our hearts certainly go out to um, our the families of the two deputies and the family and not only not only the deputy's family by blood, but also by uniform and badge. Um, I, I do know that I was on call or on standby that night to go out there and, and uh, assist with that situation in any way possible. So 
critical incident stress management uh, is designed to help people with their trauma one incident at a time by allowing them to talk about that incident when it happens without judgment or without criticism. In fact, there are a set of rules that you go over and part of those rules say that there is no rank uh, in the room. This is not part of an internal affairs investigation. It's not a critique. Uh, in fact, what happens in that room and what said is in that room stays in that room. Um, the program critical incident stress management or uh, also known as a critical incident stress debrief is peer driven. The peers, the individuals participating in there are not necessarily mental health counselors, but they have been trained as peers uh, to talk to and, and help and assist those going through those incidents. Uh, now, there are mental health counselors in there for an educational piece, but it's primarily peer driven uh, that are conducting these interventions and they come from all walks of life. Uh, we try to. Um, place what I would call relevant peers, um, certainly officers who have been involved in shootings before or other first responders, uh, police officers, firefighters, EMTs, uh, even telecommunicators. Um, and some of them may or may not work currently in the mental health field and have a past history in, in law enforcement. Uh, we, we try to match peer for peer. Uh, for lack of better words, uh, again, all the interventions, all the what we do in there is strictly confidential. Um, the emphasis is always on keeping people safe and returning them quickly to a more normal level of functioning. And normal is different from everyone. My normal may be different than your normal uh, versus uh, Ramona or normal or anyone else. And it's not easy to quantify. You can't quantify normal. So critical incidents raise our stress levels, as we talked about, uh, and they raise them dramatically in a very short period of time. Hypervigilance is up. Our body stress responses are higher than they would be, let's say, sitting in a classroom or uh, sitting at home in the in the uh, recliner. Um the purpose of the intervention process is to establish or set the new normal stress level as low as possible. And what happens there by doing this, when we lay the entire incident out on the table, uh, our brain is looking for pieces to put in pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, to make sense of the incident looking for the whys and what happens. And when we all lay those out in a critical incident stress debrief, our brain gets that, oh, okay, now I see type of uh, response. And it helps lower uh, possibilities of post-traumatic stress disorder or acute stress disorder uh, in the long run. Obviously, as you just talked about, the debrief is structured and there are a lot of folks there in that room who are trained to help facilitate the the post incident but i'm sure there're going to be times when a peer recognizes issues with a coworker mm-hmm. and that said what steps are there for for that peer to be able to take? And I guess maybe what I'm looking for or what resources are out there for a peer to have when they recognize and maybe see some signs that a coworker is not him or herself. 
That's a good question. So uh, last time we talked a lot about some of those signs such as constant negativity, uh, physical exhaustion, negligent hygiene, uh, irritability, increase in citizen complaints, uh, constant sadness and depression. Those are just a few of the signs. Uh, just to recap um, from last time, peers and not only peers but family members should look for. And some of those resources, to be honest with you, the first and best resource is the peer itself. Uh, you know as well as I do, Kirk, that we as cops are not going to reach out to people, uh, at least not at first and at least not willingly. Um, so if the peer uh, can get into that position and get some training such as uh, critical incident stress management training, peer support training, where they recognize these signs and they can talk candidly yet caringly uh, with their peer, with their with the officer and say, listen, I I'm seeing these things and I'm concerned about you. What do you have going on? Um, peers, especially if they are part of that peer support team, can reach out to local uh, substance abuse treatment uh, facilities if that's the problem. Um, in North Carolina, there is a fast track system for first responders and rehabilitation, uh, not just for law enforcement, but firefighters and EMT as well. Uh, where they don't have to wait in line for a spot in any kind of rehabilitation facility. Uh, they can reach out to embedded counselors such as myself. Um, and one place that I recently learned about since we spoke last time is, is um, ran by a uh, Charlotte Mecklenburg police officer called Hashtag Buddy Check. Uh, and you can – they have a website and also a Facebook page Um not only do they throw out inspirational and motivational quotes and, and things of that nature, but they have direct resources with the national FOP. Um, so the, the plethora of resources are out there for peers to uh, connect hurting officers to. So on occasions like this, we, we talk a lot about peers and we talk about coworkers, but I think there's also another prong which is involvement of the family. So if an officer self-identifies as exhibiting signs of an overload or if a coworker sees those signs that you just talked about, what's the importance of involving an officer's family? Well, uh, as we spoke before, um, the Henderson County Sheriff's Office uh, requires their officers to go through kind of a, a behavioral health check, uh, more so just to meet and greet with the counselors, not not necessarily a fit for duty type thing, at least not at first. Um, and, and one thing we encourage in all of those checks is identify your support system. What is what is or who is your support system? And the reason I mentioned that to you, Kirk, to answer your question is family is perhaps the most powerful support system an officer can have. And they're the ones that are going to be there through the thick and thin, past the facade, excuse me, the facade. Uh, when all the music fades, they're the ones that are going to be there. Uh, so they're the most powerful support system an officer can have. What makes them even more powerful is that equipment of knowledge uh, and what to do with that, uh, knowledge of what the officer is going to go through, what they're going to experience, uh, 
and how to handle that from a family member's perspective, how to be supportive as that spouse uh, when your officer comes home and just wants to crash on the couch and not do anything um, and how to address those things. So I would encourage officers to educate their family members on what to expect from them. And there are a couple of books out there. There's a book uh, by Dr. Kirschman called I Love a Cop um, that is a very powerful for law enforcement spouses. Uh, there's a uh, faith-based devotional book uh, by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman called Bulletproof Marriage uh, that help first responders kind of nip those things in the bud before those, they happen. Uh, and finally, uh, a book called The Bulletproof Spirit uh, which assist off not only the officer, but their spouses and uh, significant others um, in preparing for what they're going to go through. <clears throat> I would also suggest um, if you don't have a local law enforcement wives support group in your area to look into starting one. Uh, there is one in the Western Carolina area that I'm familiar with. However, I'm sure there's other areas that have that as well. And that's just where the, the, the spouses get together and, um, support each other. And they, they do this on a quite frequent basis, not just when there was a critical incident, but, uh, they lift each other up, uh, check on each other and those kinds of things. Well, and I, and I agree with you, Holy Paul, that that's the basis of a successful law enforcement career, you know, is if it's not clicking at home, it's certainly not going to click at work. And I, and I think what I hear you saying is that officers should probably lay a, a resource plan proactively rather than waiting until something happened, as you said, to have your resources in place and, and know what's there for you at the time when good things do turn bad, which leads me to this next question. I remember dating way back to the 80s, law enforcement began utilizing the term proactive policing. You know, we're, we're going to get out in front of things. We're not just going to react to those calls for service, but we're going to, to get out into our communities and, and try to start dealing with issues before they become problems. So obviously the way we had been doing business, we began moving from that reactive state to getting out in front of issues and being more proactive. And that brings to mind this question, and you touched on it just briefly, but I'd, I'd like for you to, to give a little bit more depth to it as to what individual officers can do to take care of their own mental health before issues become bigger. Yeah. So the good news is this is not all doom and gloom. Law enforcement officers are not destined for um, for a, a life of doom and gloom uh, because of this fact that we have superhuman expectations and we're only human beings. We can, this is, we can have a fulfilling career, um, and and make it to where you're at currently retirement. Uh, but there's some things we can do to get us there. And some of those things, and I would use the word intentionality, and that is the key to it is be intentional about taking care of yourself mentally and physically. Because uh, we all know and we, we teach this in mental health that our mind, our body, and the spirit operate as one. So we have to be intentional about those things. And Kirk, I often say this when I'm talking to law enforcement officers about this particular topic. You know, in law enforcement, we teach to never quit mindset, right? To stay in the fight, to never give up, push on, uh, when we're doing battle, when we're 
you know, in a altercation or anything of that nature. Well, why not apply that same concept to our own uh, mental health? Uh, why not apply that when it comes to taking care of ourselves and our family to never quit? Um, and there are a couple of things we can do to facilitate that. One of the things uh, and I would encourage is something called emotional hygiene. Now, what is emotional hygiene? If you think about it, we take just a few minutes out of our day. We, you know, we get up in the morning. I take a shower. Um, I take just a few minutes to brush my teeth, uh, brush my hair, do the things that make me presentable and, and refreshed for the day. It doesn't take any more than three or four minutes or so to brush your teeth, for example. Uh, what if we did that with our emotional hygiene, our brain, a few times a day? And it doesn't have to be any grand uh, thing. It can be just a few minutes to get away and read a book for a few minutes or listen to some music that kind of just allows us to decompress or take a walk or go to the gym just if we did that for a few minutes a day, um, whatever that thing is that gets you there, um, then you will find yourself on top of dealing with any kind of or preventative men mental health crisis. Um, the other piece of that, I would say, and, and we talked about it just a moment ago, is be sure to involve your family, your support system in your journey. By letting them know, hey, this is, you know, this is what I'm going through. Maybe you don't have to be so detailed as to what you've seen and experienced, but let them know this is what I'm going through. Uh, give me a few minutes. Walk through this with me, excuse me, and uh, involve them in that journey. Don't leave them out. A lot of law enforcement spouses and, and honestly, quite honest, my own in the past has said, I feel left out of this thing you're going through. Uh, and then finally, I would say, uh, and there's so much more, but just to keep it to the point, finally, find a purpose beyond law enforcement. Now, that's easier said than done. We all find some sort of identity through this profession. Um, but what is something that you and your family can do, can live for? beyond the law enforcement realm. Now, that may look like you know, my family and I, uh, for example, not my family, but just in general, you know, serve at a soup kitchen or feed the homeless or uh, volunteer uh, at the YMCA or the United Way or volunteer in the community doing something outside of law enforcement to formulate that purpose beyond what we see and do Every day. Well, I think there's another piece of the importance there, too, and I'm seeing more and more of this, uh, especially around the area I live where uh, law enforcement agencies are what I just like to call giving back to the community. Uh, for so many years, uh, the same scenario played out where an agency head would go before the city council or the county commissioners and ask for money for the budget season. And then they went away and they came back in 11 months to repeat that process. And the only time the community was seeing involvement from law enforcement were in calls for service. But if you don't have a call for service, then you really never got to interact with anyone in law enforcement. And you wondered why a police chief or a sheriff was standing in front of a governmental body 
asking for literally millions of dollars in order to run their agencies. And you never really had that understanding. And I'm seeing more and more agency heads help their officers understand that we are part of this community and we have to give back and we have to be involved because when good things go bad, those are the folks that we're going to turn to. Those are the resources. So some of those very entities that you talked about are the places that law enforcement will turn to for help. There is the Red Cross. There is United Way. Those are the folks that, that we're going to be leaning on heavily to help us get through some of the incidents that we may be involved in. And I know that seems difficult to uh, a really younger generation. And I don't want to be critical of them, but sometimes they are referred to as the me generation. So it's <laughs> it's hard to get them to buy in to we need to be giving back to the community. But I just am so elated to see more and more agency heads kind of help drive that train to say, you know, let's just not be in our cars and ride around and take calls for service for 12 hours. But let's pull that car over when we see a, a kid shooting some hoops or playing soccer or selling lemonade or whatever it may be. Let, let's stop and get out and get vested. And that brings me to this question. And I apologize for that oratory I just gave. As an academy instructor, you, you do bring a kind of a statewide observation to this whole crisis intervention picture. And there's that old saying, it starts at the top. And, and that's kind of what comes to mind in that discussion that I just led by myself. Are you finding that agency heads are buying into the processes of peer intervention and, and critical incident debriefs? Yes, absolutely. We've we've come a long way. Uh, I've I've been in law enforcement for a little over 19 years now, and even from when I started, I have seen the progress uh, that we're making uh, nationwide. We're not where we want to be, uh, nowhere near it. And of course, you know, the with with today's culture um, and sentiments on law enforcement, we've got another bridge to climb, but. Uh, we have absolutely come a long way in, and I hate to use the term buy-in, but administrators are seeing the importance of the mental health of their officers. Unfortunately, sometimes it takes a critical incident uh, for a administrator to um, to take a look at, at what needs to be done. And fortunately, there are others that uh, – want to be proactive before anything happens. Uh, we have taught, um, I've had Dr. Tina Jekyll, one of my uh, mentors from Florida, come up and teach at the academy on several of these related topics. And I was very delighted to see uh, captains and deputy chiefs uh, coming into the classroom and saying, we want to be able to help our officers before it gets to that point. Also delighted that we're to a point now that officers will reach out to me and to others and say, hey, we've had this happen. Can you grab a group of guys and come on? You wouldn't have seen that 19 years ago. Uh, you wouldn't have uh, seen the, the outreach and the openness uh, that you would have seen uh, 19 years ago that we see today. So I'm delighted to say that although there's still much work to do in that area, uh, there's still the stigma of we can handle it, and if you can't, then you're weak. Um, but it is dissipating. And as I said last time, awareness is part of that. But the second piece to that is, uh, as you said, it starts from the top, getting administration on board, the chiefs and the sheriffs on board with this, and making them aware. 
Well, the time has come for us to conclude this second discussion on the importance of law enforcement mental health. Just want to take a few moments here toward the end and just and give you an opportunity for some closing comments. Well, Kurt, I want to say thank you again and the Academy for the opportunity to uh, be able to speak on this passion of mine. Um, and I'm not sure if I had said this last time, but I do this uh, I do this for Sam, I do this for Chet, and I do this for Andy. And those are three first responders that are personal to me in my lives that have either ended their life or their career in hopes that others don't make that same decision, um, that they will reach out. I want to encourage officers uh First of all, and thank them for their time to uh, listen to this podcast. And But secondly, I want to encourage you to reach out to someone. Never quit. Stay in the fight and press on. So with that said, Kirk, thank you so much uh, for the opportunity uh, to, to be here. Let me thank you, Paul. We're fortunate in the state of North Carolina that Paul Phelan is with the North Carolina Justice Academy based on the Edneyville campus, and he is working diligently to ensure that officers in our state have the support that they need to cope with the stress factors that can lead to mental health crisis. Thanks again. If you or someone you work with identify with any of the signs we have discussed in this podcast, please, as Paul said, don't hesitate to reach out or to seek the numerous available resources. Remember, in a crisis, you can always find someone. As a matter of fact, it's as simple as a text message. You can text NAMI to 741741. That's N-A-M-I to 741741. Someone will always be there for you. And to all, please stay safe. The next time you're on one of our campuses, please stop by the North Carolina Justice Academy bookstore. There you can find books, t-shirts, collectible coins, and much more.